Hi, this is Ben Lowell of Back to the Bible Canada. So, from our current series, This is Our God, we've begun to understand some of the truths regarding the doctrine of the Trinity. Yesterday, we discussed the unique roles of each person in the Trinity and the wonderful way it all comes together for our salvation. Today, Dr. Neufeld will be expanding on one of the most essential Christian truths in a message entitled, God the Son. So let's join Dr. Neufeld. I recently had a conversation with my four-year-old granddaughter. She was explaining to me that her dad had to drive a long way to get to work each day. So then she explained that she lived in Canada, but her dad didn't work in Canada. Well, I tried to explain to her that, yeah, he did, but she insisted, no, no, he had to drive a long way. I could see I wasn't getting very far in that conversation because a few pieces were still missing in that little four-year-old mind. She knew we lived in Canada. She just didn't know what Canada actually was. She didn't understand the concept of a city, a province, and a nation. You know, over the years, I've come to know that I, too, use words all the time that I don't fully understand. In biology, I'll use words like genome and DNA and so forth, and I can even say that our DNA contains the building blocks for life. But I really don't know what I'm talking about, and I think a lot of people are like me. When it comes to cars, well, I can repeat words like bushings and flywheels and intake manifolds and overhead cams, but if you promise not to tell anyone, I think I use these words around car people so that no one thinks me too ignorant. I sure hope that no one asks me for any details. Now, when it comes to biblical terms, I want to tell you a story in which people struggled to know what they were talking about for several hundred years. What did they mean when they said, Jesus is Lord? I know what you're thinking. The term is actually quite simple. Romans 10, 9 to 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If this is the first confession of a new believer, the word Lord can't be that complicated. Well, that's true. To confess Jesus is Lord is to swear our allegiance to him. As the one who has authority over our lives, it's to submit ourselves to him. That's not complicated. Indeed, 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts our heart that Jesus really is Lord, and that leads us to bend our knee before his authority. But like so much in the Bible, what's very simple on one level begins to take upon itself a depth that overwhelms us. The issue goes back all the way to the 3rd century B.C. There was a group of Jewish scholars living in Alexandria, Egypt, and they had translated the Old Testament into the Greek language. That translation has come to be known as the Septuagint, and it is the translation of the Old Testament that is often used in the New Testament when the New Testament, which was written in Greek, actually quotes from the Old Testament. See, one of the features of that translation was that whenever those scholars translated the Hebrew formal name for God, Yahweh, or the Hebrew that just had four consonants, Y-H-W-H, they translated the name using the Greek word kurios. That means Lord, because it had become a custom among the Jewish people never to actually speak the sacred name, lest God's people violated the third commandment. They began to substitute the name of God for Lord, and that custom was carried over in our Greek New Testament. But here's where it gets tricky. The Greek word kurios is used 6,814 times in the Greek version of the Old Testament. 
But not every use of kurios was actually a translation of the formal name of God. And in our English Bible, which follows the tradition of the Septuagint, we refer to the name of God by using the word Lord. But not every reference to Lord is a reference to Yahweh. So our English Bible, when referring to Yahweh, does so by capitalizing all the letters. You may have noticed that in your own Bible reading. Sometimes Lord has all capital letters. Well, when you see that, that's a reference to Yahweh, the proper name of God. So here's the question. When Jesus is called the Lord in the New Testament, was he being called Yahweh or simply our master? You know, we've been studying the doctrine of the Trinity, but we should know that it took some time for the Christian church to understand the doctrine rightly. That's because the church knew from its foundations that there was but one God and that Jesus was his only son. But he was also called Lord. And what exactly did that title mean? What was being said about Jesus when the New Testament called him Lord? We hardly begin reading the New Testament when we're not immediately faced with that question. If you read Luke's account of the birth of Jesus, Luke 2 verse 11 describes the words of the angels. It says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now here's the question. Is he the Messiah who is the Master, or is the Messiah who is God? What did the angels actually mean? And then a few verses later, in Luke chapter 2, verse 15, we read that the shepherds say, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Now, I hope you can see that in this verse, the term Lord clearly refers to God. And so, what did the angels tell the shepherds? Indeed, go back to the previous chapter in Luke chapter 1, verse 43, when the pregnant Mary goes to the hill country of Judah and visits the pregnant Elizabeth. As Mary enters the house, Elizabeth cries out, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? See, many of you know that Roman Catholics have had a practice of calling Mary the mother of God. And why do they do that? Because when they read Luke 1.43, they note that it is hardly likely that Elizabeth would speak about Mary's unborn child and call that child a human master since an unborn child would never be referred to in that way. And so they rightly translate Luke 1.43 by saying, Why is it graciously granted to me that the mother of my God should come to me? Now, of course, Catholics are not saying that God came into being through Mary. They've never said that, and we Protestants should not accuse them of saying that. What they are saying is that the fruit of Mary's womb was God. Mary was giving birth to God in human form. And when we read the New Testament, it becomes more and more apparent that the term Lord is being used in the very form that the old Jewish translators used the word when they translated the name of God. Consider Matthew 3, 1 to 3. Matthew, in his account of the life of Jesus, begins by introducing John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of Jesus. And here's what Matthew says. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now listen very carefully to what Matthew tells us next. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. 
Now, in order to introduce John the Baptist, Matthew wants to make plain that John's appearance is a fulfillment of an ancient prophecy made by Isaiah, a prophecy that's found in Isaiah 40, verse 3. There, prepare the way of the Lord. Yes, you guessed it. The word Lord is Yahweh. Prepare the way of the coming of Yahweh. And says Matthew, that's exactly what John the Baptist did. He prepared the way for the coming of the great God of Israel. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus stepped onto the scene as he entered into his public ministry. God, the great God of Israel, the God who destroyed Egypt and drowned their army in the Red Sea, Yahweh, the God who overthrew the city of Jericho and gave all Palestine in the hands of Israel, Yahweh, the great God who raised up David, who did mighty works and miracles, was now standing in a lineup with sinners waiting to be baptized by John. See, the fact is, this is incredible beyond degree, but this is the great mystery behind the statement, Jesus Christ is Lord. If you've never heard of such a thing before, you would be excused by being stunned by it. And as the early church was beginning to grow and develop, see, all manner of alternatives were given because this clear explanation in the Bible seemed all but impossible. See, there was a bishop from Alexandria in the early 300s. This man was named Arius. He argued that Jesus must be a created being. He argued that God created him before he created any other thing and that Jesus was preeminent over all. But it's impossible to imagine, he said, that he is God. And others also argued the same way. They would have said, well, it is true that the Son has eternally existed. Some did. They said he can't be equal to the Father. And others argued that Jesus was an ordinary man, but was adopted by God at his baptism and given supernatural powers, but he can't be the one and only God. See, the controversy over what was meant by that very simple phrase, Jesus Christ is Lord, well, that controversy became so great, it almost tore the church apart. It almost left the church in ruins, but in the end, The phrase, Jesus Christ is Lord, ended up uniting the church as nothing else could. I'll explain that when we come back. Jesus is Lord. Well, perhaps that brings the importance of these words to new heights of understanding. And John the Baptist, well, he was just not introducing the Son of God, but in essence, God himself. Once again, the mystery and wonder of the Trinity grows. We continue with Dr. Neufeld's teaching of God the Son, right after this break. Do you use a smartphone? Well, in our very mobile world, most all of us do today. And for most of us, it's our primary tool of communicating and receiving information. That's why we believe it's so critical to create and launch our new ministry mobile apps. Now through our Back to the Bible Canada app, you never need miss a Bible teaching program again. Listen on your schedule and wherever you might find yourself. I like to say, let's take John to the gym or grocery shopping. Wherever you're going, it's your call. The app also includes videos, Dr. Neufeld's weekly blogs, and much more. So, interested? Download the Back to the Bible Canada app for free from either the Apple or Google Play Store. Or for more information on all things Back to the Bible, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Now let's return to today's Bible teaching with Dr. John Newfeld. 
Matthew chapter 8 records the incident in which Jesus calmed the storm that had come upon the Sea of Galilee. You know, prior to this event, he had healed a centurion servant in Capernaum and in consequence has healed a great many others in that town as well. Then he taught for some time and had to deal with would-be disciples who didn't know what the cost of following him truly was. It had been an exhausting day of ministry, another in the full life of Jesus of Nazareth. And so Jesus got into a boat with his disciples to be alone, perhaps to teach them, but also to rest. They hardly left the shore when he had already fallen asleep. He was exhausted. I can identify with this story in my very own small way. For a great many years, I preached five times every weekend, and the pace of that schedule always exhausted me. Jesus' pace surely outstripped my feeble efforts. And he was drained and he was weary, and so he slept. A sudden storm suddenly whipped up on the lake, and it was so fierce that the waves were overwhelming the boat, they were about to be swamped and drowned. In the frantic activity that ensued, with no doubt orders being shouted back and forth and frantic activities to keep the boat into the waves, Jesus just kept sleeping. He was more exhausted than anyone had realized. The pace he was keeping left him without any energy at all. And finally, they woke him, and no doubt it required some effort. And what they say next is at the center of what we've been discussing. They say, save us, Lord. We're perishing. Save us, Lord. Did they think he was their master or did they think he was their God? I mean, what were they asking? I doubt they had the time to think the matter through. And then, as Jesus wipes the sleep from his bloodshot, weary eyes and gets a bearing and senses their danger, He steadies himself in the boat and then cries out, demanding that the winds of the sea stop at his command, and immediately the wind stops. In fact, the Bible says there was a great calm. See, on the one hand, he's just like any man. He's as weary as anyone could possibly be after keeping so demanding of a schedule. He is fully human. And yet the very next moment, he's speaking to nature and demanding that the created world submit to his voice. See, one's reminded of Genesis where God says, let there be light, and there is light. The voice of God creates nature, and the voice of God orders nature, and all nature itself is directed by his voice. And there stands a tired and weary man on a boat speaking to nature, and suddenly all nature obeys his command. Matthew says the men marveled. You can imagine their mouths open and overwhelmed with astonishment. And then they say words that the church repeated for the next several hundred years. What sort of man is this? Indeed, how can a mere man do what he has just done? I mentioned Arius before, and Arius taught that Jesus was created by God as the firstborn of all beings that God had made, and that's the sort of man that he was. And for a while, a great many were convinced by Arius. After all, John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And Arius proclaimed that Jesus, you see, is not God. He is the Son of God. After all, said Arius, what else can Colossians 1.15 mean where it says that Jesus was the firstborn? That must mean that God made Him first, and then through Jesus made everything else. And then the year came, A.D. 325, and a council was called in a place called Nicaea. It's a small town located in northwestern Turkey. Christian leaders from all over the world gathered to discuss this as the controversy over the identity of Jesus was beginning to tear the church apart. You know, if you listen to the critics, they'll tell you that power and force won the day. 
Nothing could be further from the truth. The emperor favored Arius, and a great many bishops were leaning in his direction. And they brought their Bibles, and they were ready to do a Bible study. And of the young men who came to that meeting, one was not even an official council member. He was just the secretary to the Bishop of Alexandria. He was 29 years old, and he was a brilliant Bible scholar. His name was Athanasius, and his strong defense of the deity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity has made him a hero of all who love the truth. Because of his strong defense of the biblical truth, the emperor exiled him on five occasions. He was hounded and persecuted constantly. He was constantly on the run, and he was hiding. No, it was not those who defended the doctrine of the Trinity who persecuted others into submission. The situation, it's the reverse. Those who stood for the truth were persecuted. And if I might, let me say that Athanasius almost single-handedly saved the church from paganism. If the Arians would have won the day, Jesus would have been thought of as the son of Yahweh in the same way as Zeus was thought of as the son of Apollo. Christianity would have degenerated into just another Roman and Greek set of legends. Athanasius began by pointing out John 1 verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, the text says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It's overwhelmingly clear from that passage that everything that belongs to the category of created things, everything, was created by Jesus. Athanasius went on to point out that if Jesus were a created being, then according to John 1 verse 3, he would have had to create himself, which was, of course, a logical absurdity. All the texts of the New Testament were poured over with a great deal of care. It was noted that when Paul wrote Philippians 2 verses 9 to 10, that the Father has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed upon him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, that statement is a direct quote from Isaiah 45, and from that text, Lord means Yahweh. And that's what Paul wanted us to know. A day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh God to the glory of his Father. Let me put it in ways that we can all understand. You know, I have a son, and it will shock none of you to hear that my son shares in my essence. He, like his father, is fully human, finite, born into sin, and is one among many. That's the human experience. Well, God the Father has a son, and his son shares fully in his essence. He, like his father, is fully God, infinite, uncreated, incomprehensible, and eternal. He is only one. If it were not so, he would not be the son, but rather a created being. But Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Yahweh God, the son who shares fully in the essence of the one God. When Colossians 1.15 calls him the firstborn, it does not mean that he was created first, but rather, like firstborn in the Old Testament, he has preeminence over everything, over all rulers and authorities. Indeed, Colossians explains that the fullness of God dwells in him. He is Lord. See, why is all that so important? Well, in 2 Corinthians 11.4, Paul warns us that we must be on guard not to receive another Jesus. Another Jesus made to look like the real Jesus, but is in fact a counterfeit or an idolatrous sham. He cannot save. 
Indeed, the only one who can save is the Lord Jesus. Jesus, who is Yahweh God, he alone can save. See, I'm going to let one of my heroes, Athanasius, have the last word. Here's what he taught. Listen very carefully. He said, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that we must believe rightly in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and man of the substance of his mother, born in the world. Perfect God and perfect man, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood, who although he be God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. This, he said, is the universal faith, which except a man believe faithfully, he cannot be saved. John, you brought some interesting things to light today. And one thing I wanted to touch on, and maybe you could help us a little bit more, is this whole idea that Athanasius brings across that, you know, if you don't believe that Jesus is God, you're not saved. Yeah, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me that that's a part of what has been called the Athanasian Creed. Um, the similar words are also repeated in what has been called the Nicene Creed from 325. And then later, I don't know, in the 480s, there was another creed that was again used to substantiate that. I guess what I'm trying to say is not that we are creedal, we're biblical, but isn't it interesting that the church who is reading the Bible would over and over warn people to say, you know, if you don't hold this, you're, you're not actually in the true faith. Um, So I think we need to say that. I mean, either Jesus Christ is Lord in the sense that the New Testament says he is, or there is no salvation. Because no man can be our sin bearer. Only God can do this. And if salvation isn't fully from the Lord, there's no salvation at all. So I think we need to return to this over and over again. This teaching is essential to our salvation. What a wonderful and insightful teaching. Jesus is Lord and the only one who can save. There is no other Savior but the Son of God, our Lord, capitalized, and Savior Jesus Christ. Tomorrow, Dr. Neufeld continues in our study of the Trinity as we discover the incredible truth found in the Bible for God the Spirit. Make sure to join us as we continue this illuminating series, This Is Our God. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. July 3rd to the 10th, join Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, and award-winning musical artist Amanda Stott for our first Alaska cruise adventure. This will be a great week of inspiration, teaching, music, laughter, and fellowship while enjoying the incredible beauty of the Alaska wilderness. This is likely the last all aboard call you'll hear as we're very close to our guest capacity. So decide to join us today and call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to get all the registration information you'll need. It would be so great to have you join us on the Alaska Cruise Adventure for a fun-filled and spiritually refreshing week. 
And just a reminder that all costs related to Back to the Bible Canada ministry vacations are met by those who participate. I hope you've enjoyed and been blessed by our Bible teaching program this week. And be sure to check out our new ministry website at backtothebible.ca.